Welcome to the Science and Paranormal with Dr. Yana and Dr. Elliot, where science meets the unexpected, where we delve deep into the mysteries that straddle the line between scientific inquiry and paranormal. Get ready for a mind-altering journey as we embark on this phenomenal discovery together on United Public Radio Network, 107.7 FM. Dr. Yana, we hello, are back for hello. another episode. <laughs> we are back on United Public yes. Radio Network, 107.7 FM. This is Science and Paranormal Podcast. Uh, this is Dr. Yana and fabulous Dr. Elliot. We are going to be talking about the poltergeist, which is essentially the noisy spirit. And the concept of poltergeist has intrigued humanity for centuries, being a common theme in folklore, literature, and movies. Poltergeist is typically associated with paranormal phenomena, characterized by seemingly inexplicable disturbances such as objects moving, door slamming, and unexplained noises. While skeptics dismiss poltergeist activity as mere hoaxes or psychological disturbances, others believe that scientifically analyzing these exper experiences can shed light on their true nature. And today we aim to explore the phenomenon of poltergeists, examining scientific evidence and theories that offer potential explanations. Yes, and uh, the interesting thing about poltergeists is uh north america kind of subscribes to well they don't kind of they do subscribe to the rspk theory which stands for recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis whereas over in england uh the parapsychologists over there use the term poltergeist very interchangeably so when they use the term poltergeist they could actually mean a haunting with an intelligent entity that's causing a disturbance or they could mean that it's being caused by a living person, which is the recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis theory. So that's um, that's really interesting. Sometimes when you are listening to television programs and, and uh, documentaries, um, you'll you'll kind of hear that the term be be used in, in one or two ways, and uh, it's kind of just like a personal pet peeve for me because uh we're over here in north america i'm used to it being referred a poltergeist case being referred to a living agent but um like i said uh over in the uk and europe they um kind of use it interchangeably but what do you think about it i've never i've never uh like i said uh, to you before we uh started the show i've never investigated a case where it turned out to be a living person that was causing it usually um in a haunting case for the most part it's been determined to to be some sort of discarnate entity entity um i do i do believe that uh there's a difference between the poltergeist cases and uh an intelligent haunting because of certain characteristics that come with the poltergeist so in poltergeist cases, spontaneous fires or spontaneous water breaking out on the property or in the apartment or wherever you live uh, is very common. 
and it's not very common in a haunting. Um, the other thing that really determines it, and that's why uh, parapsychologists over here in North America believe uh, in the RSPK theory, is that when the living person, usually it's a female, but it can be male as well, um, and usually they're younger, uh, you know, early prepubescent or uh, teenage years, and usually there's some sort of trauma that's happened. But when that person is removed from the area, the activity ceases. Um, so a couple of different, you know, characteristics that are, are much different than a haunting. Um, I did find the trauma part really interesting because trauma seems to come up quite a bit in, uh, in the paranormal. It uh, seems to be prevalent in people with psychic abilities. It um, is certainly involved in poltergeist cases. For example, the two major poltergeist cases in Nova Scotia, the first one was the Green Amherst Mystery um, mm. involving Esther Cox. The trauma that happened there is she was with her boyfriend. They went on a carriage ride, and he attempted to sexually assault her and pulled a gun on her, and it was very traumatizing. And there was another carriage that was coming by while all this was happening, and it kind of interrupted that sex assault. So he got nervous and he brought her back to town and then he kind of disappeared from town. Very shortly after that, about a week after this incident occurred, uh, they started to experience poltergeist phenomena at her house. The other uh, popular case in Nova Scotia is called the Fire School of Caledonia Mills. And there was a young girl named Mary Ellen McDonald. Her father was a miner and he got killed in a mining accident and left his wife and four kids behind. And she didn't have the financial means. Um, this is back in the 1900s, the early 1900s. Uh, she didn't have the financial means to support all four children. So she had to give up one of the children to a family friend. So also their last name was McDonald, but no relation. Uh, but McDonald's adopted Mary Ellen and brought them to her farm. And shortly after they brought her to the farm, they started to experience poltergeist uh, phenomena. Eventually, in 1912, they had 38 fires break out in the home at one point, and they had to flee the home. Uh, they left the home for several months, and then when they returned to the home, to try and live in it again, uh, more fire started to break out. So they decided to just completely abandon uh, the property. It eventually burned to the ground and now there's just kind of vacant land there, but it's still uh, kind of tradition every year that St. Francis uh, Xavier University uh, kids go up there and party and they camp out there and they tell ghost stories and things like that. But again, in that case, you had a very young girl that not only had her father killed, but was then removed from her family, her siblings and her mother. So you can imagine the, the trauma there, you know, and, and you're a psychologist that, uh, you know, does counseling. So um, I know you can, uh, you can relate to this. So those were two of Nova Scotia's biggest poltergeist cases, both with underlying trauma in both of the female living agents. That is so interesting because our psychological abilities and abilities of our bodies, energy affecting the energy are phenomenal. 
And we as human beings, we think that, oh, our abilities are limited and only a certain number of people are able to perform those supposed tricks, right? Uh, But in fact, many of us are able to do that. In fact, um, a lot of my family members are able to do that. Uh, Some of them I had to even ask during the arguments, for example, not to wish anything upon me or anybody else, because that happens. And that's what happens subconsciously. We're not aware of the energy that we possess and what we can do with it, because some have uh, uh, more than the others and we are affecting, we, we are able to affect other people and energies and events uh, unknowingly. I know that about myself, that uh, since I was a child, I would, uh, every time that I would get upset at something, I would say or do something or wish upon something, and that would happen, whether good or not good. And since then, uh, I was kind of um, uh, very cautious of myself, of uh, my own words. And I observed my relatives, perhaps it's running in the family. And I would just ask not to wish anything bad because bad things would always happen. For example, if I would have an argument with one particular member of my family, I would, uh, I could feel, I could feel the energy around me and I would be stumbling and falling and things would be breaking around me. <clears throat> so thinking about the, the poltergeist, we think it is so rare, but in fact, if you look at it closer, it's uh, quite common. Uh, we may not call it a poltergeist necessarily as a noisy spirit what it's called, but nevertheless, uh, uh, single uh, activities can also be considered as a poltergeist. Um, they don't have to be as noisy as they are in the movies. <laughs> Remember that movie, The Poltergeist, in 1982, I believe, right? Yes, yeah, and then they they did a remake as well. Um, no, you're right there, and there's uh, certain characteristics that happen in a poltergeist case that are similar to a haunting. So, for example, both haunting and poltergeist cases, a lot of people report the sound of auditory experiences like knocks, bangs, or other kind of um, you know intelligible communication. That's both common. Objects moving as well. Um, with poltergeist cases, though, it's a little bit unique because when objects uh, move, usually they're thrown in what people have described or witnesses have described as an unusual ch- uh, trajectory. So it's um, it kind of moves different instead of just going, you know, straight across uh, the room. It kind of floats and, and, and does like really, really strange things. Um, poltergeist cases also tend to have... Uh, teleportation of objects or materialization and dematerialization of objects. So you'll have something disappear uh, and then kind of reappear somewhere else. We, um, we had a case uh, here in Nova Scotia, not too long ago. Um, it would have been maybe the fall of 2023 um, in East Hans, and they actually had an item disappear. So the, the wife was playing cards with a family friend and the uh, the seven of spades disappeared. I'm trying to remember the card. It was uh, seven of spades. I think disappeared. Had to be spades. Had to be spades. It was the seven of spades. <laughs> that disappeared. Um, we had a medium in the in the investigation, and it was interesting because when we gave her the deck of cards, we didn't tell her any of the details. Uh, she 
the field of cards and she's uh, kind of coming to her and she said that uh, she could see the six and the eighth of spades. So it was the card right in between um, that was missing, but she could actually pick up on like the cards, the outlying cards, which was interesting. But I, I talked to the homeowners uh, recently, uh, would have been just before Christmas. They finally found that card that was missing. They had looked for it everywhere, couldn't find it. They ended up finding it in their basement underneath a blue bin, like a Rubbermaid container, in an area where the card should not have been. So it somehow disappeared from upstairs on their kitchen table and ended up in the basement underneath a bunch of stuff. Uh, and they found it when they were cleaning uh, like cleaning out their basement. So very strange things like that will happen with, with objects. Um, again, I, I mentioned earlier the spontaneous fires and, and water breaking out. Um, the other interesting thing about poltergeist cases is they're usually short-lived. So they usually last anywhere from a week and a half to maybe at most a year and a half, two years. Whereas a haunting can be for many, many years. You know, we still hear about uh, Amblin coming down the stairwell over in Europe and, you know, places like that. So some you know, hauntings can last hundreds of years, whereas the poltergeist cases are usually very, uh, very short-lived. Um, so they are associated with people pre predominantly. This is uh, uh, what I hear you saying. And if they are short-lived, then they must be associated with one particular person or just group of people, right? Or something. Yeah, and... Uh, and that's usually that's usually it. So in the poltergeist cases, there's usually somebody in the household. Um, it can be multiple people, but that's even more rare. Usually, it's one person, um, and it's uh, yeah, it's it's usually surrounding that living person. So whenever they're in the room, something's something's happening. Um, there seems to be some physical injuries involved in poltergeist cases. Normally, it's uh, kind of manifested as uh, scratch marks or um, objects that are being thrown around the room can hit you and hurt you. Uh, so it's, it's more of, or people trying to avoid being hit by an object and hurt themselves. So injuries are, are more common, commonly reported in poltergeist cases. And, uh, the last kind of phenomena that, you know, is typical of a poltergeist case is writing on property or objects. Uh, you you often hear about, um, uh, writing on walls, for example. I know in the uh, Great Amherst Mystery case, uh, the words Esther Cox, you are mine to kill, appeared on her bedroom wall. And there was a case over uh, in the England. Uh, Mike, was it Michael? Yeah, no, Matthew Manning. He was a 11-year-old uh, boy that started to have phenomena happen at his home. And then his parents shipped him off to a boarding school. And then the phenomena started to happen at the boarding school as well. And uh, there was writing involved on uh, bedroom walls and doors with his case. And they were signatures of deceased people that would show up, um, which was really fascinating. Some of them actually matched the signatures. Others didn't match the signatures. So there was, you know, uh, some debate about whether or not it was a legitimate case or or there was some fraud or trickery involved. I find interesting in poltergeist cases because a lot of times you have a legitimate case and it does have a little bit of fraud or trickery involved, but it doesn't mean that the whole case, you just toss it in the garbage. 
Um, you know, the Enfield Poltergeist case, for example, yeah. is a prime example about that, where the Society for Psychical Research caught uh, Janet faking some stuff on video. But there was some legitimate phenomena that was also happening in the house. You know, two police officers witnessed a chair slide across the hallway. Um, and they were independent witnesses that got called there to a disturbance. So um, just because you kind of catch somebody doing some fraud and some trickery doesn't necessarily mean that the whole case is garbage. Obviously, it presents issues. Um, and a lot of times these these young kids are getting a lot of attention from the media, from investigators and things like that. So they feel like they they almost have to spruce things up, I guess, a bit for the investigators. But it's a uh, it's a fascinating type of uh, type of investigation for sure. Well, in the Anfield poltergeist, which apparently lasted uh, the activity lasted for two years, uh, like you mentioned, um, the situation has to be pretty traumatic for people, uh, and that was the mother, or I believe, of the four children, single mother who was struggling to uh, put the uh, ends together. And uh, for her, uh, living in relative poverty, of course, the children were looking for some sort of uh, attention or being able or the ability to get out of that situation. Uh, they, uh, of course, they were knocking sounds, uh, the apparent possession of uh, that uh, girl. Her oldest daughter, I believe, that the furniture was levitating and the objects moving. But at the same time, uh, it was proven that the girl uh, was moving those objects on her own to get the attention. However, they were policemen, like you mentioned, and the policemen also witnessed that, and there is no explanation for that. Yeah, and um, no, that's you're exactly right. And so, and the Enfield Poltergeist case is interesting too because there's there was some information that they were receiving from the deceased resident uh, as well, so the the enfield poltergeist case could be one of those cases where it's called a mixed bag case where you know you're having a little bit of activity occur from the living person but also there's a intelligent you know entity as well uh doing stuff uh, mixed bag cases uh are you know are, are certainly um more common than not i would say in poltergeist cases even the mary ellen mcdonald uh fire spook case had an interesting uh, kind of twist to it. Uh, so first off, um, when the night of the 38 fires broke out, uh, the husband sent the daughter and the wife to go get help. And this is a very rural uh, area of Nova Scotia. So your neighbor is just not next door. Uh, you have to hike quite a while. So as they're gone, um, six more fires broke out in the house with the living agent not there so there have been some cases in poltergeist cases where there's some residual effects after the uh the uh, living agent has left where activity will still happen um i find that case really interesting <coughs> excuse me battling a cold tonight everybody um the uh american society for psychical research sent uh, dr uh, uh Walter uh, Prince, uh, Franklin Prince down to investigate. And in his report, he actually aired by saying that um, all the fires that had happened at the house were of the, the girl's height. 
and that they all occurred while she was home. But there was actually a couple of fires up in the rafters, which were way above the girl's height. And there was the six fires on the night of the storm uh, when the 38 fires broke out that broke out while she wasn't there. So he actually uh, made an error in, in his report. So, um, but later on when he was there, he witnessed um, some automatic writing from the police officer that was investigating and also a news reporter. And, in the automatic writing, it talks about there being like an intelligent entity. So that was a case where you have classic poltergeist phenomena happening. You've got the spontaneous fires. You've got uh, items that were materializing and dematerializing. Um, some of them were cast iron pots that would be taken from the house and then brought along the uh, barbed wire uh, fence to towards the neighbor's um, property. So you'd have you know those classic poltergeist cases, but then you had the automatic writing. Uh, which was kind of alluding to the fact that there was also an intelligent entity there. So you, sometimes you get those kind of mixed bag uh, cases. That's very interesting because uh, uh, the automatic writing is also used uh, in psychology, although it is not called automatic writing. We uh, suggest that people keep the journal and uh, in times of uh, trouble or some traumatic events just to sit down and jot down their thoughts. And that has a therapeutic effect. And interestingly enough that people do get better and sometimes very interesting things are written. So uh, whether that is automatic writing or people are uh, accessing their higher self or some intuitively writing something that is um, uh, controversial uh, topic. Nevertheless, uh, something is happening there and um, some information is accessed that normally would not be accessed. And that is very interesting. Uh, I would say that poltergeist is the ultimate gaslighter because uh, we do not expect that we don't understand what is happening there. And in terms of uh, disappearing of objects, that can be a pretty bad case of gaslighting. And we ex access, it, access, it, access it from the psychological ter term, the, the, the terminology. However, if we look at that and if they are the intelligent uh, uh, entities that are producing this phenomena, then uh, what is the difference between the consciousness, whether it's the consciousness that we do not see or the consciousness of us human beings? I remember uh, living um, in the house in Missouri and for many years, uh, we would have objects appearing and disappearing. And that caused a lot of problems uh, uh, in our household. And also uh, my parents would come and visit and I would blame them that, well, why, why would you take certain objects? And they would say that we didn't. And for me, nobody else could have taken that. And then uh, my parents would blame me for that. And people who would come over just suspect other people, like, why would you do that? And then all of a sudden, when the person would come into my house, the object would miraculously appear back in the same spot so you would just think that why is this happening and then you doubt yourself you, you doubt those people and you e eventually break uh, uh friendships so you lose acquaintances and um, 
we finally uh, realized that that was uh, uh, this uh, spiritual, unpleasant, uh, negative spiritual activity in the house. Although whether that can be considered as a poltergeist or not uh, as a poltergeist, that is a noisy spirit. There was nothing noisy about it. Although people in my household become re became really noisy once in a while arguing over the lost objects that were there just a few minutes ago, right? So that can happen. And that's very interesting. That is interesting. And another thing I think you'll find uh, interesting about poltergeist cases, it doesn't come up as much now, but back in those, the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, the term uh, dissociation uh, disorder used to come up quite a bit with uh, poltergeist agents. So um, doc Dr. Walter Franklin Prince from the American Society for Psychical Research was a big uh, proponent of this. He always threw it out there. He actually threw it out there in both Nova Scotia cases, um, the Great Amherst Mystery and the Caledonia Mills uh, Fire Spook, where he believed that the living person in both cases might have been suffering from dissociation, um, which is, for those that don't know what a dissociation is, and maybe Dr. Yannick can explain it a little bit better than I can, but it's basically a psychological condition where there's a disconnection between your thoughts, identity, consciousness, and memory. So the person may actually be acting out and doing something and have legitimately no memory or cognitive recall um, of doing it. But the only problem with that is, is, well, the first the first one that Dr. Walter Prince commented on was the Great Amherst Mystery, which he did not attend. He read a book that was written about it and then basically wrote a paper about it. So um, I found that to be kind of very shoddy work because uh, he kind of armchair quarterbacked that one. Um, and then the uh, other one, at least he attended from New York and came down to Nova Scotia and was actually present at the house and witnessed the automatic writing. But again, in both cases, he uh, thought that maybe the girls were suffering from uh, dissociation uh, disorder. What, uh, what would you say, like given your knowledge in parapsychology and poltergeist and also, uh, you know, with your knowledge of dissociation disorder, like I I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that. Well, this is very interesting, very, very interesting, because um, I uh, worked ex extensively with um, borderline personality disorder, and uh, uh, that can also be considered the uh, dissociative disorder, because many people experiencing dissociation, and what is dissociative uh, personality, uh, dissociative identity disorder, what is it? Uh, something that would used to be called uh, multiple personality disorder, and uh, people with borderline then can actually be exhibiting a different uh, characteristics or even different personalities. And that is very interesting because when I got in contact uh, uh, in, with the people and started working with them with the uh, borderline personality disorder, I noticed that they do, they do dissociate. And a lot of the time they don't even remember what happened during those times. Uh, the, the times of effect, uh, emotional effect at the time, or traumatic events uh, that they uh, perceived as traumatic events. So they would not remember 
things that happened at the time when they were extremely upset, they would deny it later. And we may call them liars. Nevertheless, they do forget what the, they actually said in the um, state of effect. I know that uh, during hypnosis uh, in the clinical hypnosis, hypnosis that I do with people, I've noticed uh, that when we do uh, regressive sessions with them, certain conditions uh, uh, disappear or some, some interesting conditions do appear. Uh, for example, if the person had a poor vision, all of a sudden in the uh, altered state of consciousness, uh, the person would be able to see perfectly. Or if something was hurting some part uh, uh, of the body, all of a sudden the person would be able to move perfectly and nothing would be hurting. And I have noticed that the, on a number of times with the clients of mine, and that was very interesting to me. So with dissociations, I must agree that people can behave completely differently from what they would normally behave. And that poses uh, um, a big controversy uh, because how would we explain it? And should we approach that from the psychological perspective or psychiatric perhaps, or we uh, approach it from the legal perspective, right, that the person uh, to totally disregard the medical perspective and uh, deem the person um, legally liable for all those crimes. Uh, in the case of teenagers uh, that you mentioned primarily, those the poltergeist happened with the teenagers. Uh, in the case of teenagers, uh, not necessarily that they have um, uh, they can be punished with the same uh, uh, at the same level as adults would be punished, uh, you, uh, the law enforcement uh, guy here, um, the equivalent of the FBI, American FBI, this is, uh, you are such an interesting person to me. So that is why it would be very interesting to find out uh, how do those people get charged? I know that the, you've seen several cases, uh, unexplained cases. So how would people be charged uh, adults predominantly, with the teenagers, uh, with adolescents, it is not as strongly as, um, it's not severe of the punishment as that would be for adults uh, committing certain crimes. So in your practice, did you see anything that uh, would be indicative of uh, both uh, uh, paranormal activity and um, for which, in fact, people uh, were charged in court? That's very interesting. I'll get to that in a second. We have uh, we have a question yeah. here from uh, Bo Chason, and I would say it's uh, more for you, uh, Dr. Yana, but have you ever done any hypnosis in a correctional facility or prison uh, or on inmates that have requested it? No, I have not done. This is very interesting, and I wonder why the person would be even asking, Bo, what is the reason behind that question? Uh, I don't believe that inmates can actually uh, request a hypnotic uh, session. Um, I think that uh, that would not be possible because that's uh, something uh, elective and not necessarily that would have access to it. And I wouldn't go necessarily to prisons to perform 
uh, hypnosis on uh, any of the inmates. However, in my practice, I have uh, seen people accessing their memories of uh, in the previous lives uh, that uh, they did murder some people before, but not really in the uh, in the life that they have now. Not any memories that uh, they currently have. Uh, so Bo says that, that it is not something that has been done in Nova Scotia. So yeah, uh, Bo used to be. Uh, Bo, uh, yeah, Bo used to uh, be in charge of uh, uh, one of the jails here in uh, Nova Scotia as a correctional officer. So that's that's interesting. Um, going back to the not criminally responsible um, defense. Uh, we did actually have a case. I, I was uh, working on homicide up in Yellowknife, and a gentleman had uh, murdered his mother and left the house and was found walking down the road completely naked. And uh, when somebody phoned it in, the police attended. Um, he basically said, I, I just killed my mother, and he was covered in blood and, and whatnot. So right off the bat... Um, you know, you are thinking this is a very strange case. You're all, already as a police officer thinking like this could be, you know, being set up for the not criminally responsible defense. And um, basically what happens is we still treat the investigation like a homicide. Uh, we go to the get a search warrants and go to the crime scene and seize all the evidence and send all the uh, evidence off to the laboratory. You still interview the, the individual. Um, now during the interview, usually you can pick up as well if there's some kind of mental health issues going on, but ultimately it's up to the prosecutors to request, uh, a psychiatric, uh, forensic, basically examination of, of the accused. And in this case, um, the accused was, uh, he did undergo forensic, uh, evaluation. He was found not criminally responsible. Um, so what happens in Canada, I'm not sure uh, uh, about the US, it, I assume it's similar, but in Canada, you don't go to a correctional institute, you go to a mental health, secure mental health facility for an indeterminate amount of time um, until they can determine whether or not, uh, you know, that they can correct whatever's wrong, get you medicated and, and eventually get your release back to society. Some of them never get released and they, they stay in there until they die. Um, others have been released. Um, I know we had a crazy case out in Manitoba. I wasn't involved in it, but it, it was big news up here in Canada where um, a gentleman riding a Greyhound bus and he just all of a sudden took a knife out and cut somebody's head off on the bus and um everyone like fleed off the bus and everyone was traumatized by by that case and uh he ended up going to jail uh sorry not going to jail going to the uh, mental institution being you know treated for several years he was also found not criminally responsible and the last i i heard he was out and, and released to the public now well, that's very interesting, being released to the public, uh, uh, whether the person would do that again, whether he would also, again, be uh, in effective state uh, to uh, 
do that again to kill somebody again with a knife just all of a sudden so we never know and that is very interesting that uh, people like that would be actually released back to the public and it, it is getting to be a dangerous place on earth to live yeah it's um it is uh it's very scary the guy's name was uh vince lee for anyone that's interested i'll type it in the in the chat there um uh, I'll just type in interesting homicide case for uh, anyone that wants to uh, check that out. But his name was Vince Lee. And um, yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. Uh, he uh, was found not criminally responsible due to mental illness. Uh, went to a high security uh, mental health facility. And like I said, the last article I saw about him, I, I believe he got released. Um, it was either fully released or on at least a day pass but i know i know he he did get out so um, not even in the medical facility so he did not spend time uh in a psychiatric clinic uh well he did in a in a high security mental health yeah facility okay. yeah, he, he spent uh he spent uh some time there for sure yeah um i don't recall what his uh diagnosis turned out to be but uh very um very crazy case uh but it does it does happen like you said um you know uh, pops up every once in a while yes uh, uh and we never know what is happening in human psyches uh, working with people over the years i have uh, noticed that um as much as we know about human psyche, we don't know nearly enough to be able to diagnose or even to explain certain conditions. Uh, why would people be able to perform certain activities uh, under hypnosis when uh, they are alter, we would say alters, right? All their alternate uh, personalities uh, would be explored, uh, not necessarily with dissociative personality disorder, but just on the, with the regular people. Why would they be able to be completely healthy under hypnosis uh, uh, and come back to their normal state when uh, they wake up? meaning that there would be a sick sick people again. So to me, it always uh, puzzled me. And uh, I even tried one time to leave the healthy person uh, and just uh, give the person a suggestion that the healthy person prevails. So when he wakes up, he's going to be healthy. But the, the interesting thing happened is that he had a different personality, so that was still him. He was able to remember his name and everything that was happening in his life, but his personality was different. And uh, I noticed that they end up putting him down and return him back because you never know what you can bring out. And um, that is a very uh, tricky field. You have to be really be watching people uh, under hypnosis. I, I wouldn't suggest to anyone who wants to try hypnosis to just go to anybody who just uh, had a two days of training in uh, hypnotherapy or in hypnosis. Uh, you can't really have to two day training or a weekend or even a week of training in hypnotherapy, therapy is therapy. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, do not even attempt hypnosis with people who just have the minimal training in it who don't know ex ex essentially what they're doing that can yeah. be pretty dangerous a absolutely and like like you said and 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 like this 
episode really is talking about the the power of the mind and you know just how how much we don't even really know uh about our about our minds or just it, it's psychologists are always learning and scientists are always learning more and more about it um you know so like when you are digging into someone's subconscious through hypnosis uh you know i find that absolutely fascinating i find uh the fact that somebody so the, the theory behind RSPK or recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis is the fact that it's the bodies of letting out um, an extreme amount of stress or, or emotional energy into the physical environment. And uh, you just, you see the power of the mind, like in, in different things, like there's healing, there's, uh, you know, um, the touch healing that people go to uh, like Reiki and, and things like that uh, energy healing. And then um, I also find it interesting too, when, and it happened to my dad, when someone's told that they're sick, um, you kind of, sometimes you see a, a bad decline in their health. Whereas before they found out their diagnosis, they were, they actually like appeared to be okay. And I believe they call it the the nocebo effect, which is the opposite of the placebo effect. So in, in studies a placebo, you know, you don't know if you're getting the medicine or not, but some people will, you know, report that they feel good. And it turns out that they were just taking a sugar pill, but it's that placebo effect. Well, the nocebo effect, um, is kind of the opposite of that. So once somebody's told that they're sick, all of a sudden uh, between that and some of the psychosomatic uh, responses of the body um, that can be exacerbated by their mental health, you know, the stress and the anxiety of being told that they're sick, they'll actually start to start to get sick. Um, have you seen any of that in your work? I have because a lot of the times that I would suggest uh, to an ill person that he is absolutely fine, he or she is absolutely fine, and they would believe me because they come to the, an authority figure believing that I'm able to heal them in one way or another. And when I give them the suggestion, whether that is uh, through uh, medical hypnosis or just a regular suggestion, there is such a thing as a conversational hypnosis as well. And uh, of course, uh, a lot of manipulative people they use it uh, um, for negative purposes, but if it is done therapeutically, people do get better. They do believe that uh, they have gotten rid of certain ailments and they get up and say, well, I'm absolutely fine. And they leave happy and uh, somehow their depression and anxieties are alleviated, alleviated and they uh, don't even come back because they feel good. And if you can do that, just uh, simply just planting that seed, that idea in somebody's mind, what can we do in a negative sense, for example, and uh, when we go to the doctors and they say how many things are wrong with us, we may believe that. We may believe that absolutely. And it is important to listen to ourselves because uh, uh I always warn people from going to different kinds of fortune tellers or uh, dishonest healers who would actually uh, plant the idea in their minds that they do have problems uh, with their health or they will get sick in some time or they, they do palm reading or something like that. Uh, or 
they would be told that in the future, in five years, they're going to die. They will die. You know, they will die in five years because that's the expectations of them uh, to die. I remember that I was a, a first year of college and there was a, a girl, uh, we were, uh, what, 17, we were 17 and uh, she comes to the lecture and she is late and like, where have you been? And she said, oh, I was outside. I was just on the way to the lecture and a gypsy stopped me and she decided uh, to uh, look at my palm and she told me that I'm going to die in a year. And this is a huge nonsense, a bloody nonsense. Forget about it and take it out of your head. Turned yeah, out to and, be, uh, she kept thinking about it. She kept thinking about it for the whole year. And guess what? She died a year later and she drowned in the sea. So imagine that she didn't know that. So there is a possibility to change somebody's destiny by just having a suggestion. Planting yeah, a suggestion. And, and that's actually... Uh a sign of a, a bad medium or a bad psychic you're not i'm told that you know there's no real like governing body for psychics or mediums but a lot of them do have their own personal ethics and i've i've been told by a lot of mediums that they won't tell you stuff like that if they do have some sort of inkling you know that you're sick or that you're um going to die uh you know within the next short while that they don't tell you that that's a sign of a, a good medium and, and probably just for the reasons that you like you just described you know um i think it was an episode of uh was it an episode of x files or it was some dra uh, drama show and uh basically that's what happened the medium told the person they were going to die and they walked outside and then they got hit by a bus you know something like that so um yeah it's it's the mind is a very powerful powerful thing. I think it's more powerful than what we actually realize. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That is why I control my mind. I teach my children and people around me and people who come to see me. I always tell them to control your mind. You know, we see so much from the media. Oh, the power of the mind. You talk to yourself, persuade yourself things are going to be better and the positive psychology as well. Just believe, right? But uh, uh, we think about it and we dismiss that. And how easy is it to convince yourself? It's just, it, it is, I was just driving this morning uh, um, in my car to my appointment. And I was thinking, how easy is it, for example, that I drive and it takes, what, 10 minutes to drive from one uh, place to another for me. And during that 10, 10 minute drive, I talk to myself and I've noticed that when I talk to myself, things do change. And then I realize, you know, I don't talk to myself audibly. I did not say anything. And every time I drive and I talk to myself, uh, saying that, oh, my day is going to be great. And my, uh, all of my ideas and projects that are going to come uh, through with success, you know, the interesting thing happens that what I say, it happens exactly in the same day. Uh, I get certain type of people that uh, uh, I say that are going to come into my life or people are going to completely uh, open their arms and do uh, everything that I ask them to because uh, there are certain um, 
projects that I have that I have to uh, ask for donations for certain projects. And a lot of the people, nobody is willing to part with their money so easily, right? We're, we're human beings and uh, you have to be able to persuade them. And sometimes I don't even have to open my mouth. And when I have decided that this is going to happen, people do that. And it just blew my mind this morning that I had discovered that I don't even speak it audibly. And imagine if we speak to ourselves in our thoughts, if that is possible to change our day, what if it is possible to change our destinies in the same way? Like um, that girl uh, was, um, she believed that the gypsy that she's going to die in one year. And in fact, that she did. Now, why would tell somebody that, that you are going to die in a year? You can't change that anyway. But yeah. you already planted that seed in the mind and the person expecting that to happen. So why not put it into the good cause and for your own benefit? And we can control our mind. We can absolutely control our mind. And the, the more, the longer I live, the longer I'm persuaded that the more the, the more that I'm convinced that it is absolutely possible and I start to use my brain uh, and the energy that I have uh, in the certain way that would be beneficial for myself and also for people around me because if you use that energy which is absolutely possible anybody possesses that energy I am not a special person here it's just we must be able to change channel that energy onto some positive outcome. So those children, for example, the other lessons that you're talking about in the poltergeist uh, events, they were able to channel it in a certain way. Why? Because of some traumatic events, because they really wanted something and imagine that really happened. And they were able to cause all of that activity around them. So it is very interesting. It is. And guess what? We're at the top of the hour. You're listening to Science <laughs> and Paranormal. We're broadcasting live on the United Public Radio Network, the UFO Paranormal Radio Network, 105.3 and 107.7 FM in New Orleans and Roku TV. I also noticed uh, we, uh, we have a lot of listeners out there, but I don't think they watch the video. So I should throw it out there this episode. Um that if you do have any questions for Dr. Yana or myself, you can email us at scienceandtheparanormal at ppri.net. So it's scienceandtheparanormal at ppri.net, which stands for Paranormal Phenomena Research Investigation.net. Um, you can also visit our website at www.scienceandparanormalpodcast.com. And we'd also like to uh, let you guys know that if you are enjoying the show uh, and you want to support us, um, to give us a like, a follow, a subscribe, share, uh, comment. We do have uh, you know people that uh, comment through YouTube and Facebook through the show. We do read them and uh, try and respond to them when we can. Um, but uh, yeah, I just thought I'd, I'd throw those out there for those that don't watch the video and don't see the uh, text scrolling by. And the other announcement I'd like to make as well is if anyone 
out there is interested in coming to check out Nova Scotia uh, in October, um, I'm organizing the 2024 Halifax Paranormal Symposium, which is the second uh, annual symposium. Last year, I took a big risk. Uh, my nonprofit organization, Paranormal Phenomena Research Investigation, decided to host this. Um, we went out and tried to seek uh, some sponsors. One of them was actually uh, Michelle DeRoche from the Outer Realm last year. She's sponsoring again this year. Uh, Dr. Yan has made an individual contribution to the uh, symposium as well. Um, it's going to be held at the Halifax Tower Hotel and Conference Center on Saturday, October 12, 2024. And uh, you can get all the details about it at ppri.net slash tickets. And that's I am glad you're doing that in October and not in winter in January, February in Nova Scotia. <laughs> no, it's uh, it's actually still nice in the fall, actually. Uh, yeah, it's not too cold. Uh, the leaves are turning. It's a very beautiful time. Um, the uh, see you later, Bo. See, Bo's got to head out. Um, no, it's a uh, it, it's great. And last year we brought in uh, international guest speakers. We talked about demonology. Uh, Dr. Richard Gallagher, he's a psychiatrist from Columbia University. We brought in uh, well, Lauren Coleman was supposed to come, but he had to appear by Zoom. Uh, there was a hurricane uh, coming that weekend and his ferry got canceled and there was a whole bunch of complications, but he did appear by Zoom. Uh, then we had uh, my colleague, Dr. Daryl Walsh, that we've had on the show mm -hmm. uh, before he, he spoke. Uh, we had Chris Stiles, who is a ufologist here in Nova Scotia. He will be on the show with us next week talking about UFOs. And uh, we had Kim Moser, uh, who is a uh, producer and host on uh east links haunted uh television show and then this year i'm gonna i'm gonna be speaking a lot of people asked you said that they wanted to learn a little bit more about um ppri and i'm gonna do a presentation i think on law enforcement and the paranormal and um we've also got uh john kruth coming from the rhine research center so i'm very excited to meet john in person i've taken lots of courses from him and uh, communicated with them, you know, over uh, email and and Facebook. Um, we also have uh, Chris Kowski coming to talk about alien abductions. He's a ufologist up here in Canada. And uh, we also have Holly Stevens, who worked with uh, Kim on the TV show Haunted, and she's going to discuss uh, some of the different paranormal equipment that's used and the difference between. Uh, using it scientifically and using it on television. So I think, uh, I think it'll be a good lineup for 2024. We're hoping, uh, you know, to um, keep going and, and have it every year. And um, yeah, it'd be, it'd be great. Who knows? Maybe we'll both get to get to speak at a conference together. You got to give us right. those, those likes and shares. Likes and, make us and shares. And then, uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and if you would like to support us and uh, donate uh, to our company, to our radio show, uh, you can do that on our website, www.b, uh, that's a different uh, podcast, um, science and paranormal podcast.com. And you can click the button donate, uh, any amount counts. And we would be grateful to you for that because we uh, are talking here about the, this phenomena here and the, 
um, actually for free and we are not uh, being paid for it. So we would like uh, you to support us uh, if you enjoy this show. So thank you for doing that. Now, uh, we should probably talk about the, some other explanations for the poltergeist phenomena. What about then electromagnetic field theory, Dr. Elliot? Uh, researchers have speculated that erratic electromagnetic fields may be responsible for poltergeist activity, and high levels of uh, EMF can cause hallucinations, anxiety, or even physical discomfort, which may lead people to believe they are experiencing a supernatural presence. Science have found, um, studies actually have found correlations between reported poltergeist activity and higher than normal EMF levels in particular locations. What are your thoughts on that, Dr. Elliot? Uh, yeah, that that's true. It's, uh, there's no clear cut answer with uh, the paranormal. There's always, you're always chasing one theory after another, but, um, you're right. Research does suggest that uh, RSPK incidents tend to occur under unusual uh, emotional stress on days where there's above average geomagnetic fields being produced by the Earth. Um, there was a study done in 2012 by Miller, I believe, uh, that talks about that. And we know from the laboratory uh, experiments, uh, especially the work of the late uh, Canadian, uh, Dr. Michael Persinger in Laurentian University, that when he applied um, increased um, magnetism to the temporal lobes of the brain, people would start to experience haunting characteristics. They would see apparitions. They would feel like they're being watched. Um, some people even reported seeing religious figures like the Virgin Mary and uh, Jesus Christ. So, um certainly do subscribe to that that is you know that's definitely one theory another theory of uh poltergeist um is it's kind of similar to the uh rspk theory but they call it the pseudo possession theory and this was kind of coined by uh gald and cornell in 1979 they were uh, two leading experts in poltergeist they wrote a great book uh, i think it's actually just called poltergeist um really good book um so they kind of describe it as when the living agent is kind of left with some trauma they start to have some guilt and they become very conflicted and it's an unconscious psychological process that we don't fully understand yet but the victim starts to kind of believe that they're a target for like a diabolical attack and they start to have obsessive and intrusive thoughts um, then they'll have this inner conflict inside them, which then becomes the outer manifestations in the physical environment. And I've actually seen not poltergeist activity happen, but I've seen that kind of same process happen with uh, sexual assault. Victims. You know, when I was on the uh, integrated uh, sexual assault investigative team with the RCMP, it would often hear victims say that they uh, or survivors uh, say that they feel uh, guilty uh, or they they are conflicted um, especially if they knew the individual so you can kind of see how uh, that kind of builds upon what's going to happen with the poltergeist activity although like i was telling you uh, before the show started 
I find it absolutely fascinating and wonder what kind of stress someone has to go under for it to start to affect the physical environment. Because as a police officer, you certainly face a lot of stressful situations. Um, you know, I can think of a couple that I was, I was, there was one a domestic disturbance that we got called to late at night in the middle of nowhere. I was working by myself in Chester, my nearest backup about 20 minutes away. And uh, there was a guy on the loose in the woods um, with a knife. And I couldn't see, like he had the advantage because he was hiding in the woods and could see. And I'm showing up, you know, in the police car and I don't know where he's at. So he's already got, you know, the advantage. Very scary, very stressful situation. Another situation was uh, a bar fight outside of a nightclub in Penticton. Um, it took six police officers to arrest the guy. My partner almost got disarmed. There was 200 angry, drunk bar patrons outside. Uh, they were grabbing her tool. She lost like a, a police radio. Somebody stole it right off my partner's belt. Again, Ooh. very high stress situation. And at no time did like the police radio levitate or did an item disappear and reappear and materialize. So it's, it, it almost, you know, becomes very hard to to believe unless unless you see it i guess and and the parent almost kind of becoming like that today with i find all these videos on tiktok like i always get sent videos from friends of uh you know kind of haunting and ghosts that happen that are caught on video on tiktok but it's just so easy to fake things today um with the the technology and ai and again, those are two uh, situations that I've been in that were highly stressful and nothing paranormal happened. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I think it's just, again, like even Gald and Cornell said, it's just some sort of unconscious psychological process that we don't fully understand yet. And I'm sure you've come across um, people that have that really guilty feeling or conflicted feeling in inside them. And that's probably, you know, why they're coming to you uh, to kind of discuss that and, and work through it. What well, isn't that always is the case? Otherwise, why would we be uh, coming for help uh, to anybody? That is always is the case because uh, we are conflicted and uh, uh, we can't resolve our own personal conflict. That that's how we go for help. Um, interestingly enough, that that conflict is actually causing a lot of this activity, and the studies. Um, have even shown in the clinical labs uh, uh, a prototypical spontaneous sense presence of a sentinel being in concomitant uh, electrocephalographic activity. Uh, this is a very interesting activity in the brain that um, affects us and we are able to perceive our reality differently and we sense the presence, although many of us we do uh, sense the presence. Um, even of the person that is standing behind us would have to go far. Uh, as human beings, we are able to sense uh, people next to us or when somebody stares at us, right? Um, but also the, uh, the scientific studies, uh, they went further and actually also uh, investigated the, uh, the, the transcerebral magnetic fields um, uh, weak transcerebral magnetic fields 
and how they affect the human consciousness and brain. Uh, a lot of the times there was this uh, parasitic consciousness uh, uh, present that people have reported. So that is very interesting um, how we perceive our reality. Nevertheless, when we look at the poltergeist cases, what happens is that the poltergeist is in fact, um, can be an objective reality, not necessarily just subjective reality of the perceived uh, phenomena, right? Many people are able to observe similar things that are happening. So how do we explain that? That is the question, to believe or not to believe. It is also uh, important to note that the scientific evidence regarding poltergeists is limited, the partial and inconclusive. And the nature of poltergeist experiences uh, makes them inherently difficult to replicate under con control conditions. So uh, um, additionally, the subjectivity of human perception further complicates uh, the study of poltergeist activity. Um, how do we objectify our experiences. For example, if we look at the poltergeist movie that we probably all seen as children and which actually uh, damaged me psychologically watching that movie as a child, with, that was so bad, in fact. Uh, if we look at that, of what actually happened with the actors after that, that would be an objective reality by itself. So the movie was done in 1982, and uh, the protagonist of the uh, main character, uh, Carol Ann, uh, Heather O'Rourke, she was 12, and she actually uh, died at the age of 12, uh, just the, all of a yeah. sudden by the bowel obstruction by the abscess. So how would you explain that? And not only that, so many different people, the cast, uh, also something happened to them and they died. Um, her sister played, I uh, believe that by Dominique Dunn, right? She died in 1983. And then also the Julian Beck uh, who played uh, her intimidating spirit also died um, of uh, stomach cancer in 1985. So shortly after the movie was released, the first one, so many people died. Uh, this is very interesting. And also the friendly ghost uh, that played by Will Sampson died in 1987 by, at the age of 53. How would you explain all of those deaths? Well, movie, movies that deal with the supernatural have often reported, uh, you know, strange things happening. I know Ryan Reynolds, uh, he played um, uh, the main character there in uh, one of the, I know they made the Amityville horror movie over and over again, but uh, uh, he played, uh, you know, the main character in that. And he said strange things would happen to the staff. Uh, they'd wake up, you know, strange hours. Um, in the night, and he said basically he has no interest in doing horror movies uh, <laughs> again. <laughs> yeah, um, I know even um, Jennifer Carpenter that played uh, Emily Rose uh, in the the Exorcism of Emily Rose. Mm -hmm. Staff were waking up at three a.m., which is considered the uh, demonic uh, noon hour uh, because it's the believed to be the opposite time that. Christ died. They, they believe Christ died at 3 p.m. So the demonic love uh, 3 a.m., which is uh, kind of the opposite time. 
So um, again, is it like, is it the power of the mind? Because, you know, those, those types of people that are involved in those movies usually get quite deep into their character. Um, yeah, but if we know. look at that, at three o'clock, it's not necessarily a bad hour in other cultures. Uh, that could also uh, signify early morning and the, the hours of the gods. I would wake up early once in a while, four o'clock or five o'clock or four o'clock. Consider three is not too far from the four o'clock. And with the time changes uh, in our societies, how do we explain that? In my understanding, that it could be also the uh, uh, a phenomena that we can be easily uh, persuaded by our own selves and by the events that are happening around us. So uh, if there was, um, for example, an Indian actor playing there, right? He would not have been awakened at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Or would he be? Because he does not, uh, Jesus and Christianity is not uh, his belief, right? So how do we explain that? That is very interesting. Mm. Yeah, and uh, yeah, of course, uh, a lot of demonology is heavily, or the demonology, I should say, that we're familiar with uh, is heavily based on, on Roman Catholicism. Um, so the stuff you're seeing in the movies and TV shows and, and things like that. Um, I mean, I, I've woke, I woke up, uh, this morning at, uh, 318, I think we've got one of those, uh, bedroom clocks that project the time up on the, <laughs> on the ceiling. So if you do wake up and decide to take a look and see what time it is. And I think I woke up at 318, but at no time did I think, you know, I was being tugged at by a demonic entity or anything like that but um yeah it no. was just the time that i was thinking about our podcast and preparing for that and thinking about you and you just woke up at the same time <laughs> i probably i probably <laughs> was uh because whenever we have a show uh you know to uh try and and do some preparation and and then of course i try and do what i can for uh ppri during the day as well so uh yeah i probably did there's sometimes i wake up I used to have, uh, because of policing um, and, and the constant change in your physiological body. So, you know, we, we'd work night shift and it would be quiet and there, and that, and law enforcement words, anyone out there that's listening, that's law enforcement. Yeah. No, you never, yeah. you never say the Q word when you're working because you're going to yeah. get hammered with calls, but um, it would be quiet. And, um, then all of a sudden a serious call would come in and you're going from almost being asleep at three in the morning, you know, like your body's tired and your, your physiological body is saying, Hey, stupid, you should be in bed right now sleeping. What are you doing? Still awake. And then all of a sudden your adrenaline and your cortisol kick in and, and all that. So I was having uh, trouble towards the end of my career sleeping. Like I would wake up at like crazy hours, like two, three, four in the morning. And I felt like I could run a marathon. Like I woke up and I was just like so full of energy. And I'm like, I, you know, I, I, I barely slept. I need to sleep. And then of course, about 10 minutes before your alarm's going to go off, that's when your body wants to sleep. But guess what? Now it's time to get up and go to work. Um, so I ended up, uh, I ended up um, having to go on some sleeping pills, but I didn't like the way that they would make me feel the next day. I'd wake yeah. up and kind of feel like you're hungover, and uh, like I cognitively, I was like slower and just like couldn't couldn't get yeah. going. And um, so I kind of I kind of sort sorted that out uh, now, but I noticed like um, 
if, if I'm worried about something or, you know, I know that like we have a show coming up and I'm kind of like, you know, Oh, I haven't done my research yet or whatnot. Uh, then, um, you know, yeah. I, I, may, I may wake up periodically through the night kind of thing. So, uh, but again, it's all, it all goes back to our mind. Um, it goes back to our minds. Yeah. We have a comment here that high spiritual movement between 3 a.m. and 5 a.m. And that is absolutely true. What happens uh, um, is that the, uh, you also mentioned the, the witching hour. But uh, what happened, uh, who are the witches, if I call it the witching hour, right? So um, I don't believe and I don't remember witches uh, um, actually existing before Christianity. Those were the knowing mothers. Those were the knowing women that uh, were able or like the... Uh, the first doctors, I believe, that were treating people and children, men and women of different ailments. So if yes. we look at that, um, what uh, uh, is the essence here? Yeah, the witching hour, the high spiritual movement, movement between 3 and 5 a.m. That is absolutely the truth. So if we pathologize it and uh, say that, that this is a demonic hour, perhaps that it would be. <clears throat> that uh, I have been awakened so many times at uh, 3 o'clock in the morning, 1 o'clock and 3 o'clock. I do not necessarily see or believe that uh, I'm being awakened by some uh, uh, demonic activity, although I would always ask. And um, a lot of the times that the, this is something that you have to be awake in order for me particularly to write things down, that the, a lot of things that would be uh, transcending and a lot of information would flow uh, that would be absolutely important for myself personally and also for clients of mine. Um, so th that is the time of great insight I've noticed. So thank you for this uh, nice comment. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, as uh, as Peter Venkman says in Ghostbusters, you know, call it fate, call it luck, call it karma. I do believe that um, everything happens for a reason, I believe he says. But uh, no, I do believe that... Um, I do believe in like the type of energy that you put out as well. So like you said, if you're surrounding yourself with positivity and, you know, you're having positive self-talk and, and things like that, I find that your day does run smoother and you attract positivity. Whereas if you're always negative and you're hanging around with uh, the wrong crowd and you're just living in that negative space, then you're attracting that negative energy. I, I really do. Um, I really do believe, believe in that. <clears throat> Absolutely. That is the case. And that the, we operate on different frequencies. So believe it or not, we do. Uh, we all have different fre frequencies. And that's why how we are attracting what we're attracting into our lives. As soon as we change our mind and we get onto different frequency, and that by itself is attracting uh, other type of people to us. However, another um, explanation could be for this kinds of uh, experiences and also the uh, the poltergeist activity could be also the infrasound. So speaking of those um, um, frequencies, the higher frequencies that we should be operating on in the love and um, 
happiness. So there is such a thing as a uh, infrasound, and infrasound yes. refers to sound frequencies below the lower limit of human perception. It has been suggested that that exposure to infrasound, often generated by natural phenomena such as earthquakes or storms, can induce a range of psychological and physiological effects. And this effect may include feeling of unease, anxiety, hallucinations, uh, potentially contributing to the perception of poltergeist activity. So um, the, the infrasounds that, uh, uh, that I'm talking about those are the sounds that we cannot hear. Nevertheless, a lot of us, we are pretty sensitive. And I know that with myself, uh, I'm very sensitive. I, I can smell. <clears throat> Some people call me like you have a nose, as like dog's nose. I have ears that I can hear so many things that are uh, imperceivable to uh, other people that they cannot hear. I can see. So um, I would say that I do hear sometimes those um frequencies that are not heard by uh, the regular ears. And that is not a good thing also, because uh, that can affect me negatively. And I noticed that uh, a lot of the times that uh, it does call the symptoms of depression, it does call, cause some hallucinations. And I have been able to pinpoint that because uh, as a scientist, you look for the ways to explain it. Uh, through the scientific methods or just like regular things that are happening around you. And um, uh, there could be so many different explanations. Yeah, infrasound is big now in, uh, in par parapsychological investigations. Um, it, there's been studies done, like you said, that, that show um, typically sounds that are below 20 hertz, uh, which is kind of our normal limits of human hearing. Um, can cause uh, us to experience uh, both physiological responses and psychological responses. Um, it can cause uh, kind of like that feeling like you're being watched, you know, in haunted homes. You always hear people say, I feel like I'm always being watched. Uh, it can kind of create fear, discomfort. Uh, some people have reported uh, feeling dizzy or na nausea, nauseatus. Um, I know there was one case where they were investigating uh, a house and it turned out that there was some infrasound coming from the building next door and when they had all the special equipment to detect it um, it was when the elevator was operating next door it was causing infrasound uh, sound waves to come over to the house that was allegedly haunted so um, it's certainly being looked at in paranormal research and investigations these days um, and uh, that could certainly you know, some of the lower level poltergeist activity, uh, you know, kind of account for that. Um, certainly, we haven't seen infrasound cause levitations or oh. spontaneous fires or like that. But there are things that can cause that. Uh, for example, Lloyd Auerbach, a parapsychologist out in California, um, talks about uh, this crazy house that was built by this architect. So he didn't from the sounds of it, he didn't really like follow uh, the kind of standards, the building standards. And this uh, uh, couple kind of moved in, rented the house, and they started to experience all this strange phenomena, which they attributed to being paranormal. Um, they would uh, see glowing balls of light, and 
They'd have spontaneous fires erupting on the walls. There was one room where they would feel really sick and nauseated in. It was freezing cold. Um, Lloyd and one of his assistants went out and investigated the house and found a whole bunch of issues with the, with the house. Um, first, it was built on an old dump and there was methane gas coming up through the ground and it was a very like dry and staticky place out uh he's out your way actually anna out california um so what was happening is when the static electricity was hitting the meth the pockets of methane gas that's what was causing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the wall to catch fire and the furniture to catch fire and the room where they would feel sick and it was freezing in um had an underground water source that was underneath it and um it was also not a level room because the architect, like I said, he was just kind of winging it, I guess, or trying out something different that wasn't a code. So <laughs> winging it. <laughs> what they what they ended up doing is uh, getting out of their lease out of that uh, out of that house. Um, but that was kind of like almost like a designed haunted house because there were so many different issues with it that you know um, to those that couple that reached out. To them, they thought that the house was haunted, that there was something going on. But once you started digging into it, uh, you know, and doing some assessments uh, like Lloyd and, and his assistant did, then they found out some natural causes for it. Now, that's not to say that all hauntings can be naturally explained. I I think it's a mix, and I think it's the same with Poltergeist cases. I think that some cases can be explained through science, and others you're kind of left still don't know how it happened. And I always use... Uh, you know, some of the examples, the cases that we had, we had a, a lady send, uh, I was doing a public lecture out uh, at the Fortress of Lewisburg, helping some friends out uh, from Haunts from the Cape. And I had a lady approach me and she told me that she had a ghost photo. So I was thinking skeptically uh, that it was going to be one of those pictures of orbs or dust, uh, uh, you know, or basically a trick of, of the camera lens. And so she showed it to me and I was actually kind of impressed it was you could clearly tell it was like a face and uh it was on like near the screen door and so upon initial expect uh, sus- uh inspection on her phone like it looked really really interesting so i said do you mind sending that original photo to me and i'll have it you know checked out so uh we did i i've got a commercial photographer on uh, ppri hmm. uh, so i always use his, his professional skills so what we were able to determine is that it looked like the face was just on the screen because when you zoomed in uh, and kind of enhanced the photograph, you could actually see the squares, like each tiny square on the screen. And behind that, you couldn't see that white ghostly face. So we noticed in the reflection of one of the pictures that the homeowner had a pool in the background. And uh, both Mike and my wife, Sarah, both came up with a theory. They're like, I wonder if somebody had pressed their face against the screen. You know how kids are when they want to drink or they're hungry. They get out of the pool. They run up. Instead of them opening the door and coming in the house wet, they probably, like, leaned into the screen and and yelled something. So um, we did an experiment uh, where I had Sarah push her face against the screen just like um, – uh-huh. Uh, just like uh, the photograph showed. And it had a little bit of it, 
but not quite. And I said, well, how long ago did you apply your makeup? And she said, oh, like in the morning. And this was like late afternoon. I said, go put like a little bit of, you know, fresh makeup on. Let's try it again. And sure enough, <laughs> when she did it came back, um, it matched the picture identical. And then so I contacted the owner and I said, can you go out and take like a couple more pictures uh, right now? Because it had kind of washed away and faded, she didn't uh-huh. notice it. But when she took the picture with the flash, you could just barely see the face still there. And so we did up a report for her and explained all that. And she was she was very happy. Like you could tell it wasn't a case of fraud or she was trying to play a trick on us. She was actually legitimately happy that we were able to explain this and that she didn't have like this demon looking face uh, in her kitchen. Um, so that's a case, you know, where you really dug into it, used a professional photographer, used a bit of so- like technology and science to kind of solve it. But then there was a house I investigated uh, once before in Kentville, Nova Scotia, many, many years ago, would have been uh, late 90s, where the homeowners had pennies materializing um, out of nowhere. And we actually had that happen to us where a penny, we had sweeped the area before we started and took all the, you know, the protocols, made sure everything was clean. And uh, we had set up a camera in between the kitchen and the dining room. And there was no way that anyone could get by us without us seeing it. Cause we sat on the couch with the wife all night and her husband and the two kids were upstairs uh, in bed by this time. We're talking like two, three o'clock in the morning and every hour on the hour, I would get one of my investigators to go and check the camera, make sure it's still recording, uh, make sure the batteries are still good because you know how it is in these paranormal investigations. Those batteries seem to rapidly drain. And sure enough, around two or three in the morning, when he went to go check everything for me, a penny had materialized by the base of the tripod. So we didn't get it on film because it was outside the scope of the camera. Um, but you could hear everything. Like you could hear me ask him to go check it. You could hear the springs release from the couch when he stood up. You could hear him walk over. And um, at no point, like, did you could, you didn't hear like a penny hit the floor or him bend down, you'd hear that scuffling kind of noise. Um, that was just something that was, that happened and, and it was, it was unexplained. Now, what were those pennies? What year were those pennies? They were a mix. I still have them uh, in, uh, in my file cabinet over, over there in, in the case file, uh, but they were a mix. Um, none of them were from like the future or anything like that. It was all, it would have been from like the mid nineties down. There was actually one American coin in there actually, because you guys have, uh, I think it's Abraham Lincoln's memorial on uh, your penny. So there was actually an American penny in there. That's interesting. How come there were no Russian paintings or anything like that, like copics? <laughs> That's very no, interesting. We yeah, we Elliot, you, you're working slow, small. Why didn't you ask for more money? Like, send us more and not pay well, just... Do that's what I told the homeowner. I, I said, it's too bad you didn't have $20 bills showing up around here. Because they literally had like a jar, like a pickle jar loaded with pennies. And she said, these are just the pennies we keep finding around the house. Interesting. And, and I said that to her. I said, yeah, it's too bad that they're not $20 bills. Mm. Well, then they will lose their value with time. Yeah. Yeah. I I think it would be... Uh, I think it would be pretty pretty cool though to have twenty dollar bills just showing up everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, for me, it would be like probably hundreds. Uh, you know that that would be much better than just twenty dollar bills. I would be happy to kind of well, here and well, there and everywhere. Hundreds would be way better. I can guarantee you that. Well, 
we'll have the symposium every year if hundreds were just materializing. Around and you know what? Would we, no, would it's be a, even better than what hey, there was a, another Elliot. <laughs> yeah, no, there was another poltergeist case. It's kind of less known uh, here in Nova Scotia, but there was another one again around that kind of time period, the the late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds, and it was in Windsor, Nova Scotia, and they had uh, coins materializing, but they were strange coins, like from Europe and like mm-hmm. Spanish gold coins and things like that. Oh, now like, we're talking. Yeah, and like very from very here in more details. <laughs> yeah, like very strange coins that. Um, somebody wouldn't have easy access to you know what i mean like pennies well we don't yeah. have pennies in canada anymore mm-hmm. we got we got rid of them uh, i guess they're worth more than one cent so we stopped producing pennies uh so the only time i see them is when i go down and visit uh down in the states but um yeah like so those are easily accessible you know co- kind of coins but the, the ones that were uh, materializing in Windsor in the poltergeist case, they were like foreign coins, very old, very strange coins. Uh, so very, very fascinating. That would be interesting to trace their origin. It would be yes. very interesting because if they materialized here, they had to dematerialize there at that time. So if we look at that, how interesting uh, does it sound that uh, we would have something dematerialized here that you were talking about it and materialize some other place? Like uh, in the case of um, even airplanes uh, that, that disappear uh, without a trace, they dematerialize here and appear someplace else. Speaking of missing planes, one of the most fascinating mysteries that I was following, yeah, there's not much that comes out on it, but it's that... Uh, MH370 flight that had disappeared uh, from Malaysia. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you remember that one? Right. Yeah. 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 That was like that. Just was so fascinating. And you had the the pilot that uh, had the uh, flight simulator in his house, and they did a warrant on his house, and they extracted the data, and just the plane still they can't find it. Uh, you know, I know they found pieces of it uh, washed up. Uh, I believe it was along the shore of Africa, um, which kind of makes sense because they they felt that the plane would have kind of gone down somewhere in in the Indian Ocean. But those types of uh, cases are also very fascinating as well. Yeah, well, uh, let's just uh, call for those um, for the pennies for the hundreds of dollars for wire transfers right now. Come to our show, Dr. Elliot. Let's just have it the unexplained positive phenomena happen here. That would be great. <laughs> so we could continue our show. Unfortunately, it is coming to an end. Uh, we have been talking about the poltergeist phenomena, which remains a complex and enigmatic subject, blending elements of the paranormal and scientific inquiry. Scientific investigations into the field have uh, pointed potential explanations, such as electromagnetic fields, infrasounds, psychological factors, environmental circumstances. However, conclusive evidence regarding the existence or non-existing poltergeist activity remains elusive. So what we know is what we know. We cannot uh, disregard uh, the uh, personal experiences of people and the further in disciplinary research and objective analysis are required to unravel the mysteries surrounding poltergeist for a more comprehensive 
understanding of the phenomenon. So please support us in this endeavor. We thank you for joining us today. We've been live on United Public Radio Network, 107.7 FM, with myself, Dr. Yana, and fantastic Dr. Elliot, his ESP Excellency. <laughs> so have a good night, everyone. And thank you, Dr. Elliot, for staying up so late. I know that you're not feeling well, but thank you for joining us and actually be a part of it today. Oh, it's, it's always a pleasure. <laughs> We'll see you guys next week. Next week we have uh, Chris Styles, and we'll be talking about UFOs, aliens, and all kinds of things. Have a good night, everyone. Take care. <laughs>